You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Genesis 6, we'll be looking at the first four verses. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. Heavenly Father, we look to You this morning and we ask, Father, that You would be pleased to teach us from Your Word. That, Father, as we look to Your Word, that we would hear Your voice. And, Father, we thank You and praise You that, uh, Father, You have given us such an exhaustive message that, Father, You have given us these things for Your glory and for our edification. And Father, we pray that uh, both of those things would, would take place, Father, that you would be glorified and that we would be edified. So Father, we look to you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. The title of this morning's message is just two words. Uh, first word is slipping. Uh, the second word is away. Slipping away. Uh, I could summarize our text this morning uh, with these two words, um, slipping away. Our text this morning is actually um, quite complicated. Uh, Some of you may be aware of that. There are two major interpretations of this passage that are held by great Bible teachers. And I think that in this case, I don't usually do that. Um, Sometimes we'll come to passages and there are multiple interpretations and that becomes very laborious. I mean, um, to, to stand up here and say, okay, well, one interpretation is this, and one interpretation is that, and that's pretty tough on, on, on everyone. Uh, but in this case, I want to give you both, uh, because both interpretations of this verse are held by uh, really great Bible teachers. And not only, I, I think we should look at both of them. Um, and I, I have chosen an application this morning that I think I could apply to both of these interpretations. Um, uh, my my um, approach to application is really simple. I try to find what is plain and what is main in the text and try to use that to make application of. Um, you know, I've, I've learned that over the years. Uh, there's a phrase that you'll hear sometimes, um, keep the plain things the main things. Um, that's that's a really good rule. God is not giving us His Word and code. Um, he's giving us His, his Word to be understood. Um, that having been said, there are plenty of mysterious things about His Word, and we're coming to one of them this morning for sure. Uh, but before we go any further, I want to I want to look at this title for a minute. I want to flesh that out a little bit. You'll notice the title: two words slipping away. I've chose the words pretty carefully. The first. Word slipping is a word that is incremental, isn't it? You know, if I would have chosen 
slip away, then we may get the impression that there's one simple action, there's a slip, and then off we go. Uh, I don't want to give that impression uh, in, in our walk with God. Uh, falling away from the living God is not something that happens in one slip. It's usually very incremental. It takes place in increments. Uh, that's why I've chosen the word slipping. Um, I, I intend to say that. That's why I've changed the tense of the verb. Um, slipping uh, shows us that there is a uh, series of incremental actions that take place. Uh, and we will see that in our text for sure. The second word is away. The word away. You know, um, the girls stayed with us last night and I was having a lot of fun with the girls and I was saying some things like, uh, we've come to take you away. And of course, they giggle and they run around and they run from you. And that's a funny little saying, you know. It's like, uh, no one ever says where away is. Uh, but uh, we really don't think we want to go there wherever that place is. Uh, if we've come to take you away. Um, uh, I don't know where away is, but I, I know I've never wanted to go there. But in the case of our text... Away is away from the Lord. Um, there's, um, um, it, it's about as severe as it can possibly get. Um, slipping away from the Lord, that is slipping away, away from the presence of the Lord, away from any possibility of salvation. Uh, I can't think of too much that's more serious than that. Um, that's, that's the away part. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take some time and develop our passage. I want to show the two different interpretations uh, that I've already mentioned. And I want to show not only the two interpretations, I don't want to just give them to you. I want to show you why, um, how, why, how people come to these two different interpretations. I think we can do it. And I'm going to show you the line that I take. I'll show you why I take it. And then we'll make some points of application after that. Does that sound simple enough? I think we can do that. Um, in the next 30 minutes, I think we can do that. So, um, With this introduction in mind, look to Genesis 6 and verse 1 with me. There you see the words, when man began to multiply on the face of the land. And of course, um, the reader of Genesis will say, and you know, I get this. Uh, uh, this is, um, uh, this is uh, Genesis 1.28 working its way out where uh, the Lord, He created man. And then he charged mankind with the task of being fruitful and to multiply uh, on the face of the earth. So we see that uh, sometimes we refer to this as the cultural mandate. Um, here we find that this charge is being carried out. Mankind is beginning to multiply on the face of the land. And continuing in verse 1, daughters were born to them. Uh, simple enough. Verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, here is where, here is where the diversity comes into play. Namely, it comes into, and really most of the problem stems over where one lands on the phrase, sons of God. Who are the sons of God? Now, how that phrase is understood is going to steer the course of your interpretation. That's, there's no way around it. So I think we should discuss it. And uh, I think we ought to show okay, how both 
uh, how both interpretations understand this and how they arrive at that understanding. Before we go there, let's look at verse 2 just a little uh, just a little bit more. In verse 2, we're told the sons of God, okay, the sons of God, whoever they are, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Okay, that's what's, that's what's going on. That's the action that's taking place uh, in the verse. Now, the first question, who are the sons of God? If we wanted to answer that question, how would we go about answering that question? Well, uh, what we would typically do is we would look for this phrase everywhere in the Old Testament. Uh, we would start in the immediate context. Uh, we would want to start as, as, close to the, uh, as close to the verse we're studying as possible. And we would look at every occurrence that we could find of the phrase. And we'd look at the, cur- the, the context of every occurrence. And we try to determine how that phrase was being used in all of these different applications. And um, basically, I mean, what that's doing is that's allowing the Bible to be its own interpreter. Is basically what, in short, is what we're doing. Um, so when we do this, and let me add this, the search here uh, on this phrase wouldn't be in English at this point. Typically, we wouldn't use the English sons of God uh, because sometimes other phrases are 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 translated sons of God for for uh, there there's some interpretive liberties that are taken. Uh, if I remember right, the ESV in one place translates uh, the words "benay Israel," uh, which would be uh, literally sons of Israel. I think they translated sons of God, which makes it a little clearer in that passage. Um, so th- that that wouldn't be a valid. Uh, verse because the the words in Genesis six two and Genesis six four b'nai Elohim. Uh, so what we would do is we would look everywhere in the Old Testament where we find those two words b'nai son of Elohim and you recognize Elohim which is a name for God sons of God. When we do that, we find that there are four or five occurrences. There are a total of five occurrences. Two of them are in Genesis 6, 6-2 and 6-4. We've read about two of them already. The other three are in Job, Job 1-6, Job 2-1, and Job 38-7. And you need not turn there, just listen for a moment. Job 1-6 and 2-1 are, are really very similar. They read this way, Job 1-6 reads, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And then Job 2.1 reads very similarly. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Now, very clearly in these two passages, sons of God are angels. It's just very clear. These are angels. These are angelic beings uh, that are referred to as sons of God. Now, the third and final passage is Job 38.7, which reads this way, quote, When the morning stars sang together, and all of the sons of God shouted for joy. Again, this is another reference to a heavenly court. It's another reference to angels. Um, and um, now, if, if this is correct, uh, then we could insert angels into Genesis 6 too. We could say, okay, um, in every occurrence of sons of God in the Old Testament, we have angels. 
All right, let's put angels in Genesis 6-2 here. If angels are what is in view. When we do that, Genesis 6-2 reads this way. The angels saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So what we would have then is angels marrying these beautiful women. And that is a position that some hold. Um, I, it's, it's, I know. Um, I remember years and years ago reading this. And um, uh, it, obviously it's not a position that I hold, but uh, there, there are some really good Bible interpreters that maintain forcefully that that is the position that they have. If you look down to verse 4, where it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So under, under this interpretation, these angels, obviously fallen angels, are marrying these beautiful daughters and they're serving these mighty children to them, these Nephilim, if you will. Uh, who are these Nephilim? Well, a lot of modern translators don't even translate the, the Hebrew word Nephilim. They just put Nephilim in there, which is indicating that they're not really certain exactly uh, what the word Nephilim means or who the Nephilim are. The old King James translation, if anyone has a King James open this morning, translates Nephilim giants. And there's scriptural warrant for that. You know, this, there's a story when the, the Israelite spies go into the promised land. They go, in the, they go in there and they report seeing Nephilim. Their report is given to us in Numbers 13.33. Quote, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who, came, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Um, here, um, I think what we get is these Nephilim, whoever they were, were these really, uh, they were giants. They were really large, uh, large men. Um, uh, lastly, I should say that those who maintain that the sons of God are angels point to two New Testament passages as well. Second Peter 2, 4-5 and Jude 6-7. to uh, Some of you will be thankful to know we're not going to go there and add more technical details to what we're doing already. Uh, I just, if you want to look this afternoon, 2 Peter 2, 4-5, Jude 6-7. to uh, They see in those passages allusions to Genesis 6. Uh, so, uh, in summary, what this view holds in Genesis 6 is that fallen angels are marrying these beautiful daughters and they are uh, serving these mighty Nephilim to them. Now, again, this view is the view that many of the ancient church fathers held. Justin Martyr held this view. Uh, Tertullian held this view, Ambrose held this view, um, and m more recently, uh, James Boyce held this view. Uh, in fact, uh, James Boyce uh, argued, argued quite forcefully uh, for this view. And um, I have nothing but high admiration for James Boyce and his labors. Over the years, I've learned a lot from, from James Boyce. Uh, but I've, never, I've just never been able to adopt this view of that text. Um, because there are so many really good Bible scholars who hold that text. I, I want to offer it to you, and um, I'll share with you uh, my own view, uh, which is uh, a view that is also held by many great Bible teachers. Uh, for instance, Augustine held the view I'm about to give you. Uh, Calvin and Luther, most of the Reformers held this view. Uh, so... Um, 
Let me share with you some weighty arguments against the view that I just developed, against the view that fallen angels are marrying these beautiful uh, daughters. Um, when we're attempting to interpret Scripture, there are three things that are important, right? What are they? Yeah, context, context, context. Now, I don't say that to suggest for a nanosecond that Jim Boyce and all these other um, commentators are unaware of context, okay? Uh, they're, they're certainly, I don't want to give you the impression, well, these guys aren't paying attention to the context. That's why they're astray. Yes, they are paying attention to the context. Um, in the context of Genesis 6, it's often said that there is no reference to angels there in Genesis 6. And uh, of course, people on the other side would argue that there is a reference to angels, but um, I, really, the only, I, I think the only angelic being that's in reference here is Satan, and he's back in Genesis 3. And just because Satan is all the way back in Genesis 3 does not mean that he's not in the background. I've been showing you how he's in the backdrop all the way through here. And it's an outworking of the gospel proclamation of Genesis 3.15, isn't it? For in Genesis 3.15, the Lord says to Satan, you know, that there's going to be two offspring. There's going to be the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, right? So we have these, these themes that are going through Genesis. So uh, Satan actually, in this sense, is the patriarch, if you will, of uh, this, this other line, the line of, of descendants that would be against God and against the gospel. Uh, so he, he's certainly... Uh, certainly in view here. Um, but um, that having been said, it seems to me that um, the primary context of our passage is not fallen human being or fallen angels. The primary context of our passage is the line of Seth. It's the line of Seth. Over the last couple of weeks, what have we been studying? We've been studying Genesis 5. And Genesis 5 is a genealogy of who? It's the genealogy of the line of Seth. In fact, we go all the way back to the end of chapter 4. Seth is born, right? Genesis 4.25. Uh, Seth is born. Uh, Seth bears a son, Enoch. Uh, and at the time of Enoch's birth, people began to, to call upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 4.26. And then we turn the page to chapter 5, and we have a genealogy of the godly line of Seth. So I'm going to argue that the line of Seth is the primary context that we have here. It's the line of Seth. Um, hold on to that for a second. Second argument against the fallen angel view is that Jesus teaches us that angels do not marry. Um, now, I don't want to suggest for a minute that Jim Boyce wasn't aware of that verse. Um, he's certainly aware of that verse. And what he would say is, well, yeah, uh, angels who have not fallen from their place of authority would not marry. And then, of course, he's going to point to Jude, where Jude actually says that these angels have have, have strayed from their place of authority. They've left their place of authority. And that's the, that's the connection to Jude right there. Um, I, I'll, I'll, I throw that out there uh, because I want you to see it's not quite as clear as black and white. I'll just throw that out there. Um, okay, there's another view. Let me, let me share my view with you and, and the view of many, many others. Uh, again, the hinge is on the identity of sons of God. It's on the identity of sons of God. The second view identifies the sons of God as the godly line of Seth, because I think that's the primary context that we have here, the line of Seth. 
Um, those who were calling upon the name of the Lord are the sons of God in this particular context. I fully realize that every other usage of the phrase sons of God, B'nai Elohim, refers to angels. Okay, fully aware of that. But I think in this particular instance, I think that the context is the line of Seth, namely those who call upon the name of the Lord. So if we identify the sons of God that way, listen, to, listen as I read Genesis 1, 6, verses 1 and 2, uh, with that inserted in. Uh, when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, verse 2, those who called upon the name of the Lord saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. In this scenario, I think what we have here is intermarriage taking place. Intermarriage between, not between fallen angels and beautiful women, but between those who call upon the name of the Lord, okay, and those who do not call upon the name of the Lord. I think this is the most natural, to me it just seems this is the most natural interpretation here. Um, in other words, according to the second view, we have intermarriage between the line of Seth and the line of Cain. See, that's the context I, I, to me. That's clearer. Because that's been the context from like Genesis 4 and on. It's, you know, Genesis 4, we have the birth of Cain. First verse. And really the story of Cain, it, it, it dominates much of chapter 4. Then comes Seth, he is born. People begin to call upon the name of the Lord. All of Genesis 5 is devoted to the genealogy of the line of Seth. This is... This is, this, is, this is the gospel promise coming out, namely an offspring born of the woman. Uh, here these folks are calling upon the name of the Lord. Very clearly they are offspring of the woman. Very clearly these are God's people. They are calling upon the name of the Lord. And in chapter 6, we have humanity becoming much more numerous. Add to this, we have beautiful women, presumably from both lines, but I think what's in view here is beautiful women that are born in the line of Cain. And I think this, dis this supplies the distinction. I mean, sons of God would be professing believers. Daughters of men would be unbelieving women. Um, so professing believers are not choosing believing wives. They are instead choosing whoever they want. And this is what verse 2 is telling us. I think this is the clincher. Uh, at the, the second part of verse 2, namely the, the, the verse that says, they took as their wives any they chose. Okay? Instead of choosing wives for their morals, they're choosing wives for their beauty. And they're choosing really anyone they want. You know, uh, this is teaching us moral degradation. You see, we're, we're going to get that if we take the other line too. We're going to get moral degradation. That's why I want to keep our application. I think the application I'm going to give you this morning, I think I can say is a, is a thus saith the Lord application. You know, because it could be applied under both. I want to be really careful here when we come to passages like this. H.C. Uh, Leopold put it this way. He put, quote, When God's children lose sight of such basic distinctions and look about only for the pretty faces and the shapely forms, then surely degeneracy has set in. Now, obviously, you can see from that text, uh, Leopold is taking the same view that I'm taking. 
uh, namely that we have intermarriage between believers and, and unbelievers here. Um, so, slipping away. Uh, they're, they're slipping away. Um, and this leads us to some points of application. I, um, I think we should take note of a couple things. One, as I've already indicated, when we fall from the living God, we don't do that all at once. That happens in increments. Um, we go a little at a time. We compromise here. We compromise there. We say to ourselves, hey, look, this is no big deal. Hey, look, that's no big deal. And through the process, our relationship with the Lord becomes dull. It dulls. It'll dull. And we lose our passion to read God's Word. That will happen. We, um, we begin to lose our passion to study God's Word. We lose our passion for worship. We begin to miss worship services. When we find this happening in our lives, everyone, listen, this is dangerous. And if we can think, well, this isn't no big deal, oh, we're in trouble. This is, we need these worship services. Don't think these worship services are optional, please. I need these worship services. You need these worship services. This is, this is something that God has given to us. Well, listen, we're gathered here for the first, the first reason we gather here this morning is to glorify God. But the second reason we gather here uh, is for our own health and protection. This is, this is not an option. If we got in our heads that this is optional, we've already, we've already taken quite a few steps. We've already slid a, a great deal, actually, if we begin to think that way. Remember, falling away doesn't happen all at once. We, 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 uh, we, we slip in increments, and if we're, if we're beginning to go down this road where we find our relationship with the Lord is dulling, where we find our passion to read the Word is dulling, where we find uh, we're, we're missing worship services, we're in great danger because we're on a slippery slope. Um, nobody knows as they begin to slip where the edge is. You follow me? Nobody knows. Along these lines, I have another point of application, and it is this. If your life is controlled by impulse, you're in great danger. Uh, if your life is controlled by impulse, I mean, we, we're confronted by impulses all the time. We feel like this, or we don't feel like that, or we don't feel like doing something, or we, you know, we do what we feel like doing. Um, you know, there's all kinds of responsibilities that are upon us, and if we only do these responsibilities when we feel like doing them, then a lot of times these responsibilities, they get, uh, they get jettisoned, don't they? They just don't get done. And sometimes that can, that can be a big problem. And if we're, if we're living this way, then we're living by the government of impulse, by the government of feeling. Does that make sense? And you, you can become buried. I mean, especially for a person who struggles with laziness. I mean, if you struggle with laziness, let's be honest, you never feel like doing what you're supposed to do. And if you're waiting for a time when you feel like doing what you're supposed to do, that time's not going to come. And there are some things that just can't be put off. And listen, I've seen this, you know, you, you can end up, you can end up with such a mess, you become overwhelmed, it leads to depression. I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen that. Where people, I mean, they just shut down. Uh, they just completely shut down. I've seen it over and over and over again. Impulses are powerful. Take a, take a note from the grocery stores. I mean, when you're in that checkout aisle, what do you got all around you in that checkout aisle? You got these items, they're called impulse items, aren't they? Uh, why are they there? 
Well, because if, you know, these are things that people, you know, you didn't go in the store wanting to get these things, but there they are, you know, and you've got your wallet out, you know, and there they are, and there your wallet is, and, you know, there you go. Impulses are very powerful, aren't they? They're very, very powerful. I want to uh, quote uh, Leopold again because he's so helpful, commenting on the phrase they took uh, as their wives any they chose. Leopold writes, the closing words they took as their wives any they chose help to clinch our interpretation for they indicate that the controlling factor was, and listen to this phrase, the chance fancy of the moment. Do you like that? I like, I read that and I'm like, I gotta get that in a sermon. That has to go in there somewhere. That's just so cool. The chance fancy. This is written in probably 1940, I think, 1941. The chance fancy of the moment. Nobody talks like that anymore. Maybe, maybe they'll start now. I don't know. The chance fancy of the moment rather than sound judgment, which weighs the moral character and suitability of the one chose. So here we're controlled by the chance fancy of the moment. And this has monumental implications in our stability, doesn't it? That's the next point and final point I want to make. If we are controlled by impulses, we are going to become increasingly unstable. We're going to become increasingly unstable. Our feelings are all over the place. If we're guided by them, then we're going to be all over the place. That's just the way it is. That's just the way it works. And this is one of the reasons why we see so much instability everywhere we look. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? Um, everywhere you look, you see an instability. Nothing is bolted down. And some of this is really dangerous. You know the old phrase, a loose cannon? Does anybody know where that phrase come from? I mean, I think we all know what it means, but do you realize where it come from? Back in the days of wooden ships, they had these cast iron cannons that were, that were bolted down to the upper deck of the ship. And if one of those came loose, imagine what would happen. You got this big cast iron object that's sliding around on the deck every time the ship hits a wave or does this or does that. Is it going to be real gentle on the railings? Is it going to be real gentle on the hull of the ship? Is it going to be real gentle on anyone who happens to be in between it and the railing? No, it's going to do an incredible amount of uh, damage once it becomes unstable once it becomes unbolted. And this is what we see going on all around us. Nothing is bolted down. You know, I, I can give you an illustration from electronics, and you don't have to be an electronic genius to get this one. You know, in electronics, there's, there's a stabilizing factor known as a ground circuit. All of us have heard of a ground, uh, a ground circuit. And if you lose a ground, uh, or if the ground becomes even slightly compromised, some electronic devices can do the wackiest of stuff. Uh, your car is a good example. I mean, if you lose a ground or you have a compromised ground in your car, your car can do some of the craziest, wackiest things. And people will go and they'll buy all these expensive sensors and expensive parts, hoping to fix their car. They'll put them on and it's still acting wacky. Um, because the ground, it's not grounded. And we're no different. When we lose our ground, we can go spend all the money we want. If we're not grounded in God's Word, then we are not grounded in reality. We're grounded in some kind of illusion, not reality. And we will do, uh, listen, go out in the community today and, and 
just observe. We will do the craziest, wackiest stuff, won't we? If we're not grounded in God's Word. I mean, you can go spend all kind of money on self-help tapes or videos or whatever. Uh, if you're not grounded in God's Word, you're not going to have any lasting benefit. So in conclusion, what's the answer? Well, it's one of those things, you know, like when you're in Sunday school and you you were fishing when the teacher asked the question, you didn't even hear the question. But then the teacher looks at you and says, well, what do you have to say? Uh, well, if you say Jesus, you're in pretty good shape, right? It's usually a good answer. Yeah. Unless the question was, who is the evil one? Well, then that might not be so good. But generally speaking, the Sunday school teacher doesn't ask you that question. Uh, she wants to hear or he wants to hear you say Jesus. And uh, what are we to do? What's the answer? Everybody say Jesus, you know. He's the answer, isn't he? He really is the answer. I mean, when we find ourselves slipping, and listen, when we're slipping, we know we're slipping. Let's be honest. Don't we? How many have never slipped a little bit? Really? You know? We know we're doing it when we're doing it. What's the answer? Even if it's so slightly, we look to Jesus. When we find ourselves slipping, even if it's so slightly, let's listen, let's train ourselves to understand that one little slip is, is dangerous. It's quite dangerous. I'm not suggesting that you can lose your salvation, by the way. I probably should insert that somewhere. Because I don't want anyone to leave here and say, well, I thought Rick believed in eternal security. I do. But how do we know we're in the faith? One word, perseverance. You know, John says, you know, those who went out from us proved they were never part of us. How do we know we're part? We'll persevere to the end. It comes down to this. What's the difference? How do we tell the difference between apostasy and backsliding. Because to us, they look the same, don't they? Only God knows the heart. Uh, Both are bad. Apostasy is bad. Backsliding is bad. If we're slipping, we're doing one or the other. Both are bad. That's the point I want to make. Does that help? I'm not suggesting that a true... That person who's truly in the faith can lose their salvation. If we could, we'd all be gone. There isn't a one of us that would be headed for heaven. Um, But how do we know? We lose all assurance that we're in the faith when we begin backsliding. And that's why people will start, again, you start becoming unstable. Um, So if we're slipping, what do we do? We look to Jesus. That's what we do. We look to Jesus. Look to him afresh. If you were drowning and Jesus was standing there with a life preserver, what would you do? You'd reach for him, wouldn't you? Well, that's exactly where he is. It's exactly where he is. And listen, loved ones, he is always right there with us, isn't he? Look at the very end of Matthew 28. He says, lo and behold, I am with you when? Once in a while? Sometimes? When you're doing good and reading your Bible every day? No, he says, always. You see, that softens our hard hearts. It's like, really, Jesus, you're going to be with me now? You know, when I've been very clearly giving my heart to other things, you're with me now? Yeah, actually, yeah. Yeah. You see, that will soften our hearts. We look to the cross. We don't believe Jesus is with you. Look to the cross. What's he doing on the cross? I think I see him. What's he doing? Bearing our sin. 
bearing our sin. Look to His resurrection. What, what's the resurrection show us? Well, it shows us everything, doesn't it? Shows us everything. He defeated sin, death, and darkness. For who? For all He came to save. How do you know He came to save you? You believe in Him? Do you trust Him? Mm. What do we do after that? We repent of any wayward actions. We repent. We ask Him for His grace and for His strength. Help us. Help. When we begin to feed upon His Word, we make it to worship. We spend time in prayer. Not waiting until we feel like doing these things. We don't just do this when we feel like doing it. You just do it. That's what I tell people. A lot of times people say, Mary, Rick, can I talk with you? And we'll sit and we'll have a talk. And they'll be like, you know, I, I just, I don't, I feel this way, I feel that way, I feel this way, I feel that way. I'll say, well, tell me, are you reading your Bible? No. All right, are you praying? Not, not really. You've been attending worship? No. Well, all right, you're going to read your Bible tomorrow, right? Well, well, listen, I mean, choice is yours, but, um, Here's, here's, my, here's my advice. I, I, would, I, I would get back into the Word of God. Uh, I, would, I would be in service on, on Sunday. These are, these are the means by which God feeds us. You know, if we quit eating, what's going to happen to our bodies? Uh, we need the fellowship of each other. We, we need the nutrition that comes from the Word. We need, we need all of these things. Otherwise... We're going to lose our ground. And what will take the place of that ground? Well, obviously, it already feelings already has. They're already governing us. And then what happens? Well, what happens to these people in Genesis 6? I mean, we're going to be studying this. The people of old in Genesis 6, we're going to see very clearly, they don't take this advice. They... In Genesis 6, 1, 2, 3, 4, they're slipping away. They still have some of a foothold, but they're slipping, you see, in increments. They're slipping away, away. What is away? They're slipping from the presence of God. They're slipping from the possibility of salvation. That's what's going on. It doesn't get any more serious than that, does it? Hebrews 3.12 Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that, Father, You would always be strengthening us, Father, as we, as we look at passages like this, Father, where we clearly see the people of God slipping away Either way, I think, either way, either interpretation we take of this, of this very mysterious verse, Father, it seems that what is plain here is, is people are slipping away. And Father, I pray that You will apply this verse to our hearts, my heart, everyone who hears this message, Father, apply Your grace to us, that we would begin to take more seriously when we find ourselves slipping, even if it is ever so slightly to the left or to the right. And that we would uh, recall uh, Genesis 6 and these, these early verses, uh, that you would bring them to mind, that it would awaken us to the severity and sobriety of uh, any slip. Um, so Father, we want to walk with you. We want to live lives that are, that are purer than they currently are. And we call on you, Father, that you would be pleased, Lord, uh, to do this work. It's all, it's your work. Uh, we can only do it in your strength. 
So, Father, we, we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.